Well, I gave you an outline. What you don't need to do is be glued to it. This is hopefully actually not to be laborious to you, but freeing to you. Uh, if you feel the need to try to take a bunch of notes and a bunch of text and write down a bunch of points, I want you to just relax because it's all right there. Uh, any text that I hit um, is, God willing, will be right there. Um, and, uh, and so you shouldn't feel any need to uh, jot everything down. We are going to be looking at Genesis 50, but we're going to start in Genesis 1, get scared. Um, my hope is that we will take a wide angle lens. You're going, man, I hope it's really wide angle. Uh, wide angle lens and look at the book of Genesis this morning. Um, If I had to divide the book of Genesis into uh, five sections, this is how I would divide it. It's one of the fun things about being a uh, preacher is that you can come up with tasks like, what if I had to do this? And then you just have to do it. Um, So here's the way I would divide it. I would divide it, chapters 1 through 2 is what is creation. In chapters 3 through 11 is the story of sin, fall, and judgment. Chapters 12 through 25 is the story of Abraham. Chapters 26 through 36 is the story of Jacob. And chapter 37 through 50 is the story of Joseph. Pastor Chad always tells me every Sunday that I need one takeaway line to give, um, or it's a failure as a sermon. So um, I'm not. I don't feel any uh, obligation there. But let me give you a takeaway. Uh, it makes things go a lot better throughout the week when we meet. Anyway, um, here we go. What we meant for evil, what we meant for evil, God in Christ is reconciling for good. What we meant for evil, God in Christ is reconciling. And is recreating for good. The Bible opens with the main character of the Bible, and it is not Adam. It's God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis, that's the very first, what an opening, love it. Alright, three points of what we see here about our God. First, our God is singular. He does not share His existence with any other gods. In the beginning, God. That's assumed. That is a point and it is assumed. Second, He is uncreated. He is self-existent. Unlike everything else that will be mentioned in the, book of, in, in the Bible, God owes His existence to no one. It is impossible. I love this statement. It, and by the way, it's not mine. Um, it is impossible for God to not have been. That's amazing. You could have not been. I could have not been. 
How does that work? He says, don't want it. God could not have not been. Wow, that's pretty amazing. All right, anyway. Third, He creates. God creates. How? How does God create? Well, look at the text. The text tells us aptly, and God said, God creates by His Word. God's Word is profoundly powerful. When God speaks, things happen. And that is so fundamental about what we have in the Bible. We've read it so many times, we, we just run past it. But just keep in mind, this is assumed. Creation happened because God spoke it. But what does it mean that God said something? That seems straightforward enough until you realize that God does not have a body. He doesn't have a body. So if you say that you said something, I immediately think you are claiming to have used your voice to create a sound that's carried through the air to some listener's ear. That's what it means. But God doesn't have any vocal cords because He doesn't have a body. And His only audience in those first three verses of Genesis chapter 1, namely Himself, has no ears. So we can't understand God in a straightforward way when we, as we understand ourselves speaking. No more than we can understand God as walking in the cool of the garden in the same way we understand ourselves walking because God doesn't have legs and feet. So what does it mean? If it doesn't mean the same straightforward way that it means when I speak or you speak, what does it mean that God speaks? It means that God merely willed for there to be light. And by His willing, light came forth. Wow! What power! He just willed it. What a difference between God and us. You think about how much of your lives, our lives, are filled with the constant frustration that what we will to happen does not happen. It doesn't take you long to be up in the morning to get to that frustrating point, right? A lot of times that that can just happen before I get the first cup of coffee in me. And by the way, I think that's like, and there was light. That's kind of how that is for my mornings, right? I can already be frustrated. God has never felt that frustration ever. (laughs) What, What I feel in the very first moments of my day, God's existed forever and He's never felt it. He's never felt the frustration of that. (laughs) That's God. He literally does what He wants to do and nothing gets in His way. That's the very first verses of Scripture. He said, why make such a big deal about that? Especially when you got 50 chapters to cover. There are three reasons. And I think it's crucial to the rest of Genesis. First, three reasons here why I make a big deal that God creates by His Word. First, we need to note that God's will is synonymous with God's Word. 
That is, to say that God wills something is to say that that is God's Word on something or another place. If you know God's Word on something, you know God's will on something. No more searching needed. Now, this is very different than how we operate. Because as created fallen beings, our words and desires often conflict. But God's Word always aligns with what God wants. To say as a congregation that we want to stand on the Word of God is not to make a point about standing on some religious document once written down. It is our claim that we are standing on what God wants. It is our claim that we are banking that humans flourish most when they do as God has asked. Secondly, so first point, God's Word is God's will. Second, I raise a question concerning the meaning of God said so that we can see the absolute sovereignty of God as central even to the very first few verses of the Bible. Pastor Chad in his last sermon aptly defined that the idea of God's sovereignty could be boiled down to God is in full control. And I fully concur with that definition. Notice that the notion of God's sovereignty encircles the very first verses of Scripture. God from the opening scene is not portrayed as an actor in the drama. He is not as a hero feverishly working to save things, to make things right. And he's not even a chess master reacting to various players' moves. God, from the very beginning, is portrayed as the author in full control. In one sense, the work is not yet complete in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, as it's just getting started. And yet, in another sense, the book has already fully been written. <laughs> He's not using a writing instrument of a pen on a paper or a keyboard with a computer. His story is not held on a computer or on a paper, but on something much more secure. It's held on the never-changing, all-knowing mind of God. The God of Exodus, like the God of Genesis, is never passive. He is never reactionary. He is always active, and He's always in full control. Thirdly, I raise the question concerning the meaning of God said to make a point about who we are as creatures. If you're under the age of 40 for sure, and I just picked that arbitrarily, please listen to this point. This does not come natural for us. We are tempted to think of our building blocks in physical terms. Molecular strands holding genetic code. We are prone to see our lives as preserved as a series of heartbeats and breaths. But that, dear friends, is not the picture of Genesis. Instead, as presented in the book of Genesis, the building blocks of who we are is the Word of God. Jesus is not being cute or figurative when He utters the statements that man doesn't live on bread alone, but He lives on the very Word of God. 
Our souls long for the Word of God because they were created by the Word of God. At the fiber of our beings is the Word and the will of God. That is why regularly hearing the the preached Word is so central to the life of a believer. Because our very existence depends on it. Moreover, if God's Word is synonymous with His will, then we can say that the building blocks of all creatures are, is the will of God. We were created by, through, and for the, word, the will of God. This is a statement I want you to just chew on. We are forever intricately tied to the one who willed us into being, whether we acknowledge it or not. As such, our lives will make the most sense and exude the most joy, not necessarily when our circumstances go the way we want them to, but when we live in harmony with the will of God. Man, if I could have preached myself that sermon about a thousand times, I would have really saved myself a lot of heartache. (laughs) We'll see in Exodus that the people of God often think their joy is tied to their circumstances. You'll see this over and over. And over and over, God is reminding them, no, 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 no. Your joy is found when you Follow my will. The first two chapters of Genesis depict the beauty of God dwelling with man and his bride. It is a beautiful, stunning picture. I mean, you read it and you actually stop and picture it. You picture Adam and Eve walking and dwelling with God in the garden. No sin, no heartaches. It's beautiful, it's euphoric. And it is suddenly disrupted when sin enters the picture. Recall, how is it that sin enters the picture? Isn't it because the Word of God is called into question? Isn't it questioning whether the Word of God is actually the best thing for us? That's how sin even walked onto stage. The serpent says to Eve these words, deadly words. Did God actually say? That's exactly what he said. Did God actually say? We often view that query from the serpent as an innocuous question. It is not an innocuous question, it is a deadly question. Think about it. We just said at the very core of who human beings are is the Word of God. If you take out that, you unhinge the very stratus of who they are. And in an instant, the very lives that were created by the will of God were decreated by man's conscience decision to reject that will. In an instant. Like a body destroying its own organs, man rejected the foundational fibers of his own being. And in so doing, 
We know that the corrupted DNA of our first parents will forever be passed down to every man or woman born under Adam. From the moment, from that moment on, the DNA that was originally made is to fulfill God's will within us. That's how you were created. At the very heart of who you are, you were made to fulfill God's will. And from the moment that Eve said, no thank you, from that moment on, when the curse happened, we have forever been a people who have said no to God's Word. Hmm. And in an instant, we see God moving from the God of blessing and joy to the God of judge. Look with me in Genesis chapter 6. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. (laughs) Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now if you're expecting me to make comments on the Noah movie... I won't because this is about the story of Noah in the Bible and that movie is about the story of Noah from somewhere else. But anyway, um, I'm not making any comments about it. Uh, Just know for yourself, if a director says at the beginning, this isn't the biblical story of Noah, you got trouble on your hands. But anyway, we're moving right past that. Uh, we're, We're not talking about that. We're going right on as they try to steal the evangelicals' money. Anyway, we'll just keep going um, and not make comments, and we'll get ourselves in trouble. All right. Um, Stopped him. God sees the corrupt nature of man across the earth. The very ones He created to live by His Word are living in absolute abandonment of it, in rejection of it. And God said, this is His Word, to Noah... I'm ending this. You know, we often think of the story of Noah as a cute story about this cute little man um, and his big little big boat and his friendly little family that get on it and they just tick, 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 tick. oh, send out a dove, it's over. Tick, 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 tick. You know, um, I mean, Asher plays. He has a he has a little Noah boat and they play with it all the time. And it occurred to me as I was writing this. That would honestly be... I mean, this would even be much worse. It would be like my son playing with figurines from the Holocaust. That's exactly what's going on. This is a horrible, horrible story. Think about it. It's not a sweet story. God God flooded the whole earth and destroyed everybody in an instant. It was so horrific that God felt the need to say to the only witnesses left, I promise, I'll never do it again. I promise. It was horrible. Why? Because God immediately sets up in the biblical drama, My Word creates you. But I will judge you when you live in rejection of it. I am willing to judge. Set up in Genesis chapter 3. Seen all the way through chapter 11. And I'll tell you, there's a certain sense as you're reading through Genesis 1, starting 1 and you get to 11, where you really begin to think to yourself, this thing could end right here. 
God created something incredible. Man has said no things. And God could just say, forget it, I'm done. And then Genesis 12 just comes out of nowhere. It really is shocking. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Look with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we have God doing what to Abraham? Speaking to Abraham. Here we have God calling. In so doing, God gives Abram some unbelievable promises. Well, who is Abram to receive these promises? Hear this clearly. He's a nobody. He's a nobody. And that is the point. He doesn't deserve any of these promises. In fact, all he deserves is God's judgment, just like all the rest of the earth. God is gracious to him. God calls him. And when you think of the idea of God calling, I want you to think of the idea of God recreating. Inasmuch as God's Word created life, so also His Word recreates life by drawing men to Himself. This is what the promise represents. If God gracious, is God graciously promising, He's going to recreate life. And He's going to have a special people. That's all. I mean, that is set up. In Genesis 12, something really amazing happens. God gets Himself on the hook. He makes a promise. And He's got to fulfill it. He says, I'm going to have a people. I am going to recreate this people. God creates. Man decreates with his fall and rebellion. And God promises, I will recreate. That's the story in a nutshell. God goes out of his way to make this point, to make the point that I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it with no help from you, Abram. How do you know that? Because he has no children, and he's promised so many of the stars, and that you won't even be able to count them. He has no land, and he's promised a great possession, and he has no name, and he's promised a great name. <laughs> That'll help. As you're reading through Genesis, you might get the idea at this point. Okay, now we get it. We have Genesis 1 through 11. We got a huge problem. God is going to judge creation. Then he makes a promise in Genesis 12 to this nobody. He's going to give him a, a great nation. Got it. So God is going to make a great nation out of this guy. And then that'll be the end. And, and everybody else will get judged. You think it's going to happen quickly. Or you at least would assume that. But then something really, really interesting happens. In Genesis 15, before he's ever given him Isaac... <coughs> Listen to what God says to him. Genesis 15, 13-14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Hmm? And will be servants there. And will be afflicted for 400 years. <laughs> I will 
they'll bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterwards they'll come out with great possession. I'm going to give you this huge nation. Now, before you even have a son, I'd like to tell you one of the things I'm going to kind of do in this. For 400 years, four centuries, I'm going to take all of these people, you know, the ones you don't even have yet, I'm going to take them and I'm going to put them away in slavery for 400 years. Now, 400 years is a long time. 400 years of affliction is a really long time. I mean, think about it. We as a nation haven't been around 400 years. we got 162 more years to go. <laughs> he tells Moses at the very get-go, listen what's going to happen. I'm going to call your people, I'm going to make your people, and then I'm going to enslave them for 400 years. Well, okay. Well, okay. We know that Egypt is coming before Isaac is born. Egypt is coming. You know an exodus is going to happen. Because God already said they're going to do what? They're going to be enslaved and they're going to what? Come out. Way before Isaac. Before the first... I was going to say before Abraham changed the first diaper. But I got a funny feeling Abraham didn't change diapers. But that's a whole other argument for a whole other day. Shame on Abraham. And that's the way I need to end that. Alright. Second. First we see that God is sovereign. First we see that God is sovereign. You could imagine... If you were born in one of those 400 years, lived your entire life in slavery, and the whole time you've been a slave, now just stop and think about it. You're born a slave, you're going to die a slave. There's just no doubt about it, right? And the whole time you come home from doing your slavery thing, and the old people of the community sit around and say, we want to tell you all a story. We are a chosen people. God's people. He's going to do great things for us. You've got to imagine that you're not believing that but so much, right? Oh, really? Sure feels like I've spent my whole day making bricks. What's planned for tomorrow? Oh, yeah, that's bricks, right? And it's promised. God tells them at the get-go so that when it happens, He can look at them. And God loves to say this. I told you so. That's one reason. Second, we get a glimpse about something that is really important for the Christian life. In Acts chapter 14, Paul is stoned with rocks and he is adamant to explain something to all the other believers right after he gets up. This is craziness when you're reading this in Acts 14. He's stoned, he's almost dead, and then he gets himself up and the next day they go encouraging all the believers. Well, what is he going to say? I'm going to tell you what I'd say. Hey guys, if you see rocks, run real fast. Right? This is what, what Paul thinks he needs to run and tell everybody. Acts 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... This was on their way to do that. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Here's it, here it is. Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, let us not be surprised about tribulations and trials and afflictions. That is how God chooses to save His people. Let us furthermore wholeheartedly reject the teaching that God saves you in order to make you rich and comfortable in this life now. It 
is a lie from the pit of hell and deserves no hearing in the Christian church. It is the afflictions and the pains and the struggles in this life that God has ordained to get us home. And it starts with the very first man that He calls. I'm going to call a people. I'm going to do an amazing thing. But I will do it through trials and afflictions. Okay, so God calls. He recreates for Himself a people. He called Abraham. He blesses him with a son Isaac. Isaac is blessed with a son Jacob. He's the main character of chapters 26 through 36. Jacob's story is a story that God will preserve and keep. Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph. And Joseph is the central character of chapters 37 through 50. Joseph is his, his dad's favorite. He gave him a multicolored coat. I wore my multicolored tie this morning. There's no doubt about what tie I'd be preaching in this morning. This is Joseph week. All right. I, was pre- I have multicolored socks on too. I really do. Yes, I do. Yep. I do not. Yep. I don't mess around when it comes to dressing for the sermon. I can't see. <laughs> God forbid I preach through Leviticus, right? <laughs> All right, anyway. In Genesis 37, uh, we are told of Joseph's dreams. In these dreams, Joseph pictures the family all bowing down to them. Now, you can imagine that these dreams don't really create warm fuzzies with the rest of his brothers. It's not like they sit around the campfire and say, Hey, Joseph, can you tell us the dream again where we all bow down and serve you? Please, we'd love to hear it with another marshmallow. No, they hate it. And they devise a scheme where they're going to sell Joseph into slavery and convince Jacob, their father, that Joseph was killed by wild animals by dipping Joseph's robe. It'd be like dipping this tie. Dipping Joseph's robe into the blood of wild animals and taking it and convincing their dad that he's dead. And at 17 years old, Joseph is sold into slavery. He sold a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar just happens to be one of the most powerful men in Egypt. So what does Joseph do? You're in slavery, you're 17 years old, everything is going bad for you. You used to be your dad's favorite son, now you're a slave. Do you sit around and mope? Talk about how horrible it is? Not Joseph. He works his tail off. He works hard as unto the Lord. Everything is going well as far as it can go for slavery until he runs into a problem. Potiphar's wife has the hots for him. She begs Joseph to sleep with her. Joseph refuses. Tells her he can't do that to Potiphar and he certainly cannot defame the name of God. Potiphar hears of Joseph's great uh, uh, discipline. And in so doing, he disciplines his wife and, and sets Joseph free. Well, not really. It's not exactly what happened. Said Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of raping her. Joseph is then thrown into one of the worst prisons in the land, one made for the king's people. Because remember, Potiphar's a pretty powerful person. What does Joseph do? Sit around and mope? Oh, poor me. Can't believe this happened. I was righteous, but God didn't care. Nope. Instead, he becomes so faithful. He lives so conscientiously that he gets put in charge of the prison. <laughs> While in prison, Joseph 
by the way, if you're starting to think to yourself, this guy doesn't even seem real. Well, that's kind of the point. But that's another time. While in prison, Joseph befriends two fellow prisoners who happens to be the king's cupbearer and baker. They each have dreams which Joseph interprets. Joseph tells the cupbearer that his dream represents how he'll soon be released from prison and return to serve the king. And that's exactly as it happens. The cupbearer promises Joseph, I will not forget you. I will never forget this. By the way, the baker's is not nearly as good. Um, Bad day next day for him. So now Joseph, cupbearer's released, baker's gone. Joseph is 27 years old. He spent the last 10 years of his life either imprisoned or enslaved. In another two agonizing years go by. The cupbearer completely forgets about him. But God doesn't. Two years. Brothers and sisters, through many afflictions, we will enter the kingdom of God. The king has a dream. Joseph is called upon and God works in an unbelievable way. Joseph tells the king... And his dream indicates a major famine is coming to the land. Major preparations must take place. And he says, it'd be good for you to choose a wise guy to do this. And who do you think the king, the Pharaoh, says should do it? Joseph. Within moments, he goes from being imprisoned to being the second most powerful man in that nation and arguably in the world and will soon become the second most powerful man unarguably in the world. About 14 years later, Joseph would have now been in his mid-40s. Jacob and his sons are starving to death because the famine that God predicted is coming. They hear there's food in Egypt. News had spread that Egypt had one of the most amazing programs to get ready for it. It's as if they saw it coming. People began across the whole world to go to Egypt for food. Interesting. Through a lot of details, it's kind of odd that it gives us so many details. The Bible just runs past some things. They give you lots of details on others. Through a lot of details, we get Joseph and his family reunited. Jacob and all of the brothers moved down to Egypt. And it is because of Joseph and Egypt that they are saved. Otherwise, they would have starved to death. About a decade after that, Joseph probably in his mid-50s now, Jacob dies. And the brothers, they finish the burial. It's the first part of Genesis 50. Really interesting how that goes down because you've got the Egyptian culture and then you have the Hebrew culture and they're all trying to figure it out. It ends up being this really like couple month event. But anyway, side point. They finish the, the burial and the, and the brothers are looking around and they're going, um, Dad's dead. And Joseph got here because we sold him into slavery. Joseph is the second most powerful man in the land, and we got no ties to the first. We best have an idea about what we're going to do before we end up like the baker. That's Tim's translation of it. So this is exactly what's going on when we pick up in Genesis 50. That is the longest introduction you'll ever get to a text read at the beginning of a sermon. Don't worry, we're closing. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, Genesis 50, verse 15, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their, and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Now just to imagine, it takes 25 years from the time they sell Joseph into slavery till they meet him again. For 25 years, they lived with what they had done. For 25 years, they held up a lie to their father that his son was dead. They did all of that. Because they couldn't stand the dreams that little Joseph had. And here's the irony. What they did fulfilled those dreams. Can you imagine the humiliation of being one of those brothers and having to explain to your sons and your grandsons in Egypt how you got there? So, Daddy, what was your role in saving us and getting us to Egypt? Well, um, we we sold Uncle Joe into slavery. And then we convinced your granddad that we killed him, or that he was killed. And we kept that lie for 25 years until we found out Uncle Joe was who Uncle Joe is. Can you imagine that? You know, if, if it's my kid, he's going to say, again, tell me that again, um, please, right? Um, no, 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 no. <laughs> it was hard enough the first time, son. They go to Joseph. And I want you to see Joseph's response, folks. Please don't lose me now. His response at the end of verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He has every right to wipe their sorry rear ends out. And he weeps. There's foreshadowing here. It's utter compassion. Verse 18, His brothers also came and they fell down before him. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said, Don't fear. What am I, God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Oh my goodness. These are some of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. Joseph sums it all up. He looks at his brother square in the eyes and says, You're fully responsible for what happened. You are fully responsible. God is fully sovereign. What you meant for evil, God worked for good. These are the twin pillars of the Scriptures, whether we recognize them or not. And that is, God is sovereign and man is responsible. And say it again. God is in full control and man is 
is responsible. Those pillars never cancel each other out. And I believe they work together to offer God maximum glory for His abundantly saving grace. The Bible could not be clearer that God sovereignly ordained. Now listen to this. The Bible is utterly clear that God sovereignly ordained the single most wicked act in history, bar none, and that is the murder of God Himself. And in Isaiah 55, it says it was the will of the Lord. His Word, we said His Word and His will are the same, to what? To crush Him. God is sovereign over the most evil act in history, then I argue there is no act over which He isn't sovereign, including every evil act that's ever done. God is in control. And yet, man is fully responsible, and the Bible is incredibly clear on that. You remember this right from Acts 5. Peter stands up to the Sanhedrin and what does he say? You killed Jesus, our leader and Savior, by hanging Him on a tree. You're responsible. How is it that God ordained something and man is responsible? We don't have time to talk all the way through that, though I think there are a lot of helpful things to say. But listen, no matter how much you read or write or talk about it, you will never get past this point. This is presented in the Scriptures. And therefore, we must believe it. We're never commanded to fully understand, but we are commanded to believe. And it says, God is sovereign over everything that happens, and man is also responsible. Let me suggest that the story of Joseph sums up the gospel. In this story, just think about it. We have one brother who suffers for the sins of the other brothers. Now that sounds familiar. Through the entire suffering, this brother remains faithful to God. God rescues him to save the very ones who who are the ones who are to blame, responsible for the suffering. So what do the other brothers, what do they contribute to all of that? They contribute one thing. Their sin and rebellion led to their own rescue. Stay with me. We've seen that in Genesis, God through His Word creates man to live by, for, and in His will. Man rejects that. And in so doing, falls from joy and contentment. Man effectively works to decreate what God has created. But God in His mercy calls or recreates a people whose existence will be identified by their harmony to live with the will of God. God creates, man decreates, God recreates. Now is man responsible for the first or the third one at all? I argue not a bit. He's no more responsible for his own creation, or he's no more responsible for his recreation than he was his first creation. But he is fully responsible for one part. He contributed one part and did a great job. The decreation. This is the gospel. We were created for God. 
We've each rebelled and are responsible for our sin. Our only hope is that God calls us to new life and recreates a life that is no longer rebellious to His will. Hear it this way. Your only hope, my only hope, is to become like Joseph's brothers. That is, that we might be part of the chosen people of God. That's what a church is. We are a group of Joseph's brothers. Like Joseph's brothers, everyone is part of the family. Everyone who's part of the family of God has sinned against God the Father. How we mistreated his son. Like the brothers, we are guilty of a heinous crime. Like the brothers, we hold on to a bloodied robe of our father's favorite son. But there's a distinct difference. We do not deceive our father about the whereabouts of his son. No. We do so knowing the entire time when we present the bloodied robe of our brother to our father. Our father knows that that blood is not the blood of a bull or a goat, but it is the blood of the precious Lamb of God. And there is one major difference between our story and Joseph's story. The amazing part of our story is that our father knew it, willed it, and pulled it off himself. And the amazing part of our story is that the son willingly subjected himself. Like Joseph, Christ our brother was fully faithful and never wavering. As God used Joseph and his ill treatment at the hands of his brothers to save his brothers, brother and sister, if you are in Christ, God will use the ill treatment of Christ to save us. And we will be forever characterized as those who owe everything to our brother Jesus. But let's close with this. Now just stop. I want you to swallow it for a second. You will forever be characterized as one who owes everything to your brother. That's a pretty humbling place to be. We have a very merciful Lord. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 21. How does Joseph respond? Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. They fear. Sorry, it finishes there. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. (laughs) They fear he's going to exact revenge. Not only does he not exact revenge, listen, he does not even demand they spend their lives paying back the debt. But instead he says, don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Believer, hear Jesus saying this to you this morning. I will never exact revenge. I will never make you pay back your debt. What will I do? I will spend eternity providing for you and for your little ones. I go to prepare a house for you. That's his way of saying it. That is our lot as Jesus' brothers and sisters is completely tied to our Lord. Forever we will be those who are provided for by Christ. Unbeliever, might you respond with repentance this morning. 
That is honestly owning up to your contribution of sin and rebellion against God. Your responsibility. And may you place your trust in the God of the universe and that His Son Christ will forever provide for you by His righteous deeds. Let's pray.